Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. And I'm Emily Buter, Managing Editor of No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. It's September 8th, 2016, and this week we'll bring you to the mountains of Colorado and the canals of Venice for the influential Telluride and Biennale Film Festivals, and to Amsterdam for new toys from the big IBC Gear Show. And as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. We are recording in Toronto, Canada, where we landed this afternoon and will be for the next week covering the Toronto International Film Festival. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's basically America, except very slightly different. Like, more northern. <laughs> and it doesn't sound as good <laughs> in here. So, usually we record for you in our sound booth in Brooklyn, New York, and now the three of us are huddled next to a bathroom uh, on a bed with a lot of Toronto traffic. We're, we're about five minutes from the Tiff Bell Lighthouse, which is the center of action at Toronto International, which means we are also in the heart of downtown Toronto. So we've done our best to muffle the windows with literally socks. Yep. And uh, we're going to get into some good news for you. They're John socks, by the way. They are my socks. It was very innovative, and thank God I'm here to deal with these situations. Next week, we're going to do our entire show about TIFF, but we'll have you know that so far, we uh, got our badges, and we're given the TIFF swag, which strangely included a bottle of Axe body spray. And let me be one to just say, Axe, good job with this latest fragrance. I smell very nice, and I think that Liz and Emily really appreciate um, the gift that you've given them, as well as me. Actually, John was the one who was most impressed about John's smell for Max Body Spray. So <laughs> I think it's a self-referential thing. But anyways, we're not here for the deodorant. We're here for the movies. The movies. So we'll be talking a lot more about TIFF next week. But in the meantime, we are just wrapping up and in the midst of uh, some very important other film festivals. It's Te- full-blown festival season now. Welcome to the saison. La this is saison. It. It started with the Telluride Film Festival, which went on over Labor Day weekend. It really kicks off the big festival season every year. It's a really unique festival because it actually doesn't announce the lineup until day one when everyone's already there, which, as far as I know, that's basically the only major festival that carries that tradition. And I love that they do that because you can, when you're in festival mode, you can find yourself over preparing to like the t- the 10th degree, just trying to find um, booking your schedule minute by minute and trying to figure out which films are going to be the ones that are going to pop this year. And this method based at Telluride basically precludes that and forces everyone to just live in the present and experience. And it's the perfect place to do that because it's in the middle of this blissful enclave of mountains in Colorado. And when they do get around to announcing the lineup, there are a bunch of Oscar contenders or Oscar hopefuls on there. And um, it's a really, really strong programming from that from that festival. Yeah, critics and you know journalists like us sort of have to be choosy about the festivals that we go to every year. And Telluride ends up being a big one because a lot of Oscar hopefuls as we enter Oscar voting season are showcased there. Brokeback Mountain, The Crying Game, Blue Velvet all premiered there in years past. Every year, IndieWire does a survey of the favorite films from the critics and journalists that do go. This year, among the 17 critics and reporters who voted, eight chose Barry Jenkins' Moonlight as a festival highlight. So that's one definitely to be looking out for when Oscar season rolls around. 
It was actually made by a longtime Telluride staffer. So Barry Jenkins has worked for Telluride. It's his second feature. The first one was Medicine for Melancholy in 2008. And this one, Moonlight, was was produced by A24 and Plan B. So it gives it a lot of sort of cred and backing. It's also playing here at TIFF and at the New York Film Festival, both of which we're covering before it's released theatrically on October 21st. So I'm sure one of us is going to try to uh, to check it out and let you know what we think and hopefully speak to a director or producer or somebody that can give you the real goods on what it took to make a film that uh, got such critical acclaim. Another film that people loved this year at Telluride is Una, which I'm actually seeing this week at TIFF. Um, I'm really excited about it. It's a psychological thriller starring Rooney Mara as a sexual assault victim and Ben Mendelsohn as the perpetrator. And it's based on a very morally complex play. So I'll be interviewing the team behind that this week. Awesome. So Telluride specifically aims to be a celebration of films um, more than kind of a an award getter. So they don't actually give any awards, which is kind of rare at big film festivals. But concurrent with Telluride is the Telluride Mountain Film Festival, which is a documentary festival that showcases nonfiction stories about environmental, culture, climbing, and political and social justice issues. I mention it specifically this year because they do give out some really interesting awards, including a Moving Mountains Prize, which in addition to the award to the filmmaker, gives $3,000 to a nonprofit featured in a film in the festival. This year, that award went to Almost Sunrise, which actually we have an interview on the site with the filmmakers of that movie uh, and their own story is really interesting in the sort of making of they followed two Iraq war veterans um, as they journeyed by foot from Wisconsin to California to confront the suicide epidemic that claims the lives of 22 veterans every day. That's a staggering statistic. It's shocking. From the mountains to the canals. Now we go to the Venice Film Festival. It's the 73rd Venice Film Festival going on right now. It runs until September 10th. It's part of a magnificent event called the Venice Biennale, which takes uh, over the entire city to showcase international art of all kinds. So the film festival part is only a small part of this amazing international art showcase. I went several years ago and it was absolutely magical the way the entire city sort of gives itself over to art. The Film Fest itself is a little less our indie speed than Telluride or some of the others. For example, the big headlines so far uh, at this year's festival are about two Italian models whose dresses accidentally revealed too much of their lady parts on one of the red carpets. Whoops. Talk about a canal. (laughs) (laughs) But they do have two great programs specifically geared toward indie makers. One is the Biennale College, which helps develop micro-budget features for first or second time filmmakers. Um, They say it's to complement and enrich the festival with works by new talents. And the selected works each year get developed and produced in an advanced workshop for training, research, and experimentation with young filmmakers from all over the world. And any filmmaker with their first or second feature can apply. They also have a production bridge program which showcases 40 works in progress, and those come from the realms of film, TV, web series, and VR uh, to help them get finishing funds. Interestingly, even though the Venice Film Festival is very focused on art and artistic works, they also are known, like some of the other big festivals, for showcasing films that you might not think of as indie or even as sort of non-mainstream. And their festival director, Alberto Barbera, Gave a really, he wrote a really interesting sort of public letter about the festival, talking about how 
maybe the definition of art house is changing and maybe film festivals don't have to be dedicated entirely to films that are really out there for the radical fringe. He said that he also wants to look at a type of cinema which in his words, does not intend to give in to rampant vulgarity, which doesn't settle for the simplifications of a disposable product, which doesn't renounce being a mirror of the present, an intelligent divertissement, a show for many. In other words, it's okay if it has mass appeal, as long as it's kind of not vulgar. He says, a type of cinema which today deserves to be supported and encouraged, defended and promoted, at least to the same degree as that which, for the sake of convenience, we continue to call auteur cinema. This, too, is something that festivals do. It's interesting from, you know, an Indie Film Weekly perspective. I mean, on one hand, we count on festivals to showcase less mainstream work. On the other hand, just because something has mainstream appeal doesn't mean that it's bad or vulgar. You know, as we talked about when we talked about the BBC Films list. Plenty of low-budget films do have mainstream appeal. And that's that's a that's a model that people continue to build on these days. So it seems like he's speaking exactly to that audience. I'd just be interested in what his definition of vulgarity is. Because I feel like a film can be vulgar and still be good. Um, from the reading the larger context of his letter, it didn't seem like he was talking about vulgarity like the fart jokes that you love so much, John. It was more like about some um, films that are specifically going for mainstream appeal tend to like appeal to the basest, like people's basest instincts. And he's he's saying, from what I understand, that you know, again, a film can have mainstream appeal without treating people like idiots. So switching gears a little bit, Apple had their big special event yesterday. Um, where they released the iPhone 7. There's been a whole lot of hubbub about the fact that they are doing away with the headphone jack and moving towards Bluetooth headphones that they've specifically designed for their iPhone. We were hubbubbing about it here just today. We were. Say what you want to say about that. I'm not a huge proponent of it, but we're not going to focus on that right now. We're going to focus on the aspects of the phone that are important to filmmakers, mainly the highly improved camera. Here are some of the specs for the new iPhone 7's camera. It comes with enhanced optical image stabilization. That's something they worked on a lot. Apparently it's going to reduce blur associated with motion and handshake. And a sensor will help the lens counteract even the tiniest movements, allowing for up to three times longer exposure compared to the iPhone 6S. It shoots with raw DNG files. And one of the biggest updates is their wider F1.8 stop aperture. The larger aperture allows for up to 50% more light to come into the camera sensor than the iPhone 6. So it just makes the camera very reliable in low light situations. They say that teams with the new six element lens, the camera will develop brighter, more detailed shots. Something that video makers can really pay attention to, however, is their new high-speed 12-megapixel sensor, which is 60% faster than the iPhone 6S. Wow. And it allows for 4K video recording. In addition, it has this new quad LED true tone flash, which uh, basically means there's four smart LEDs that flash 50% 
brighter than the iPhone 6s and the flash actually adjusts according to the color temperature of the environment. So all in all, it's like a very smart camera. They've developed this thing called ISP, which is short for the image signal processor. It allows for better auto exposure, focus, color, noise reduction, and cinema standard color and white balance. It's just like a smarter camera in the sense of it recognizes its environment and automatically will switch its settings to capture the best image. The iPhone 7 Plus features the rumored dual camera system so it's not just one entirely new camera system on the iphone 7s plus it actually features two cameras side by side a 12 megapixel wide angle camera and a 12 megapixel telephoto camera that work together in tandem with optical zoom at two times and you can get even closer with improved digital zoom that lets you shoot at up to 10 times for photos and six times for video So what do you guys think this means for filmmakers? Do you think that filmmakers can finally start using the iPhone as an incredibly legitimate means to shoot films versus just sort of some gimmick? I mean, there's already been a Sundance feature shot on the iPhone 6. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just going to become more and more legitimate. Yeah, people were talking about how um, Sean Baker used... Uh, a lot of adapters, like mm-hmm. lens adapters for his iPhone while shooting Tangerine. So maybe they're taking steps towards eradicating that problem too. I mean, my answer to your question is that I don't think more filmmakers are going to be leaning toward the iPhone as their primary tool, but I do think two things. I think many might be using it more as a backup, like a C camera kind of thing. And rather than more filmmakers using it as their primary tool, I guess that more you know, amateur hobbyists are going to be making better quality work with their phones. Do you think that eventually it'll sort of replace the DSLR? That's a really interesting question. It's possible. Someone actually, I think, brought that up in our community uh, recently just because we talked about the um, Canon 5D Mark IV last week and how, you know, that's basically just a camera built for taking pictures. I mean, if the iPhone's shooting in 4K, that's kind of a game changer. Yeah. The thing I don't understand is how are you going to store all that material on your phone? Well, the new iPhone models actually, they're wiping away with the old um, storage patterns. So um, those used to be, I think, I mean, I'm probably going to get these wrong, but 1632 and 128 and now they start at 32 and they move up like 32 128 and i think like past 200 but they're they're much more expensive too so if you want to hear more about the latest iphone specs go on to no film school and read our summary of it yeah speaking of that canon 5d mark 4 we did talk about it on last week's show at length and and kind of uh, the buzz on the internet about how folks were a little disappointed in what that camera had to offer for filmmakers. And some are suspecting that that's why Canon followed up so closely on the heels of that announcement with uh, one that's gotten sort of a lot of excitement uh, online and within our community, which is the fact that they're bringing back to life their C line of cameras with the C700. So the Canon C700 was released this past week. um, And if it wasn't clear before, it should be clear to pretty much everyone that Canon now thinks of the still and cinema worlds as being very separate places. There's a lot here that would have made folks happy to see in the Canon 5D Mark IV, but unfortunately uh, it's in a camera that costs 10 times as much. So the C700 is in the 30 grand range. That being said, it's sure to create magical images with 
120 frames per second, 4K RAW being possible with an optional codex recorder. Um, at the same time, in that price range, they're competing with the Vercam Pure, Sony F55, Red Epic, and Aria Mira. And it remains to be seen if they're going to have something magical enough to get users used to their current workflow switch. We are going to be having even more uh, exciting gear news, a couple teasers coming up on this show and even more rolling out in the next week, because in addition to all the film festivals that we're talking about and attending, IBC kicks off today in Amsterdam. Um, It's the premier annual event for professionals engaged in the creation, management, and delivery of entertainment and news content worldwide. And the exhibition part, which is basically like the NAB of Europe, where a bunch of new tools and gear are released, starts tomorrow. In anticipation of that, several companies have announced new releases, which may also explain why Canon came out with that C700 announcement this week. Uh, And there's a couple that have stood out to us so far. Such as Cook Optics reimagining the classic Speed Pancrow. So Cook is re-releasing the original Speed Pancro glass in PL mount and modern housings. Of course, you can still rent the original Pancros at a lot of rental houses, but the housings themselves aren't necessarily everything you are used to in a modern lens. By taking the original optical design and hopefully the original coatings and putting them in modern housings with PL mounts, Cook has really come out with a monster lens that should pair well with super sharp digital sensors, like the Helium for instance, and take some of the digital edge off without the need for filters. So if you want an example of what these pancros can sort of look like, just think about Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I think about them all the time. DP Boyan Bozelli famously mixed the speed pancros and S4s to blend together their two aesthetics, often using the pancros for close-ups of Angelina Jolie. It looks like it's going to be a big IBC for lenses, with Sigma coming out with their CineLens line. The line has been referred to by their CEO as being 100 and 100, so they're keeping it 100. 100% the same glass as the art line of still lenses, but 100% new housing specifically designed for cine use. This will mean gearing for focus, iris, zoom. Hopefully the zooms will be par focal and the markings are more visible to a focus puller. Sigma makes all of their glass at a single factory in Aizu, Japan, and they manufacture a lot of beautiful lens options. Particularly interesting is that the first two zooms out of the gate are both T2, which is a very wide aperture for a zoom, especially for the longer zoom, which goes to 100 millimeters. If Sigma has brought all the thought and housing that we see in the press picks to fully functioning release lenses, These are sure to be very, very popular, so keep an eye out for them. And now we're going to move on to some grant deadlines. Being that we're in Canada, Hot Doc's Cross Current Doc Fund theatrical stream has a deadline on September 21st. This year, the Panicaro Foundation started underwriting a feature film subsection of the Cross Current Doc Fund, which they've dubbed their theatrical stream. The fund is an international production fund that fosters storytelling from within communities whose perspectives have been historically underrepresented or marginalized. This theatrical stream awards one emerging filmmaker under 35 with less than three directing credits with 30000 Canadian dollars towards their feature. Another upcoming deadline on September 12th is for IDFA, otherwise known as the International Documentary Film Festival Amsterdam. Their Doc Lab Academy 2016 is an international program for new talent in the field of documentary storytelling and interactive media. The program takes place November 17th through 21st during the festival run. The program addresses a variety of challenges and opportunities through exclusive workshops on virtual reality and interactive storytelling by international new media pioneers. You can have one-on-one meetings and ask specific questions during cinema live events on the interactive conference platform. And of course, there's plenty of time to network and reflect on each other's work. The entry fee is 130 euros. This is also a good time to mention that our 
seasonal massive list of grants for the fall is up on No Film School. It's always one of our most popular posts because it lists all the upcoming grant deadlines for the next few months. And moving on to festival deadlines, not only are we in the thick of the fall festivals themselves, but we're getting to the point of some of the big, big annual festival deadlines, including the one everybody tries to premiere at, Sundance. Obviously, we don't need to say much about Robert Redford's annual Mountain Fest, except that next year's edition takes place from January 19th to 29th, and as always, is in Park City, Utah, and we, No Film School, will be there, and hopefully you will with your film. Uh, It's the last chance to submit your short, feature, or episodic content. Uh, For short and episodic content, the final deadline is September 23rd, and the entry fee is 80 bucks. And for features, the final deadline is September 26th, and the entry fee is $110. These seem like really steep fees. I would not usually recommend uh, that type of festival to filmmakers because, you know, when fees are that high, it kind of feels like a scam. But this is Sundance. And also one of the reasons why these fees are so high is because this is the absolute final deadline. So if you were to try and get your film in at an earlier time, there would be a reduced price. Note to selves for next year. Yes, always go for the early deadlines if possible because you will save money. The deadline is September 12th for the Center for Asian American Media Fest 2017 or uh, the nice short name for it, CAMFest. It's the nation's largest showcase for new Asian and Asian American films, presenting approximately 130 works in San Francisco, Berkeley, and Oakland. Um, We all have Bay Area roots here, and I don't know, I think the demographics of that area have changed quite a bit thanks to basically Google, but um, when I lived there, there was actually an Asian American majority. It's such a rich environment for showcasing Asian American media and for the creation of Asian American media. And the Center for Asian American Media is really at the center of uh, of a lot of that really excellent and innovative work. Um, the festival has been going on since 1982. It's a really important launching point for Asian American independent filmmakers and a vital source for new Asian cinema. They also showcase music, food, they have interactive workshops. Um, There's a lot going on and they have uh, juried awards. And everyone's favorite alt festival, South by Southwest, has a deadline on September 22nd. This is the regular deadline, so if you want to avoid paying higher fees, do it now. The festival next year takes place from March 10th to the 19th. Of course, this is Austin's premier film festival. We've covered it last year and put podcasts out from it. This is one of No Film School's biggest festivals of the year. We always cover it very comprehensively. We've talked about it a lot on the show. And in a nutshell, it's still one of the most fun, most exciting, most active, most things going on, indie-friendly festivals in the country and probably the world. So... Definitely recommend it. If your filmmaking is geared more towards new experimental sort of VR and even augmented reality, then this would definitely be one to uh, put on your list. That's actually a really great point. The reason John mentions that is because it has a whole other um, concurrent festival, the Interactive Festival, which overlaps with the film festival. And so there's plenty of programming that appeals to both interactive and film audiences together. I can't believe it's time to start talking about South by Southwest again. Cannot believe it. They've already started selling badges and everything. Wow. Can't keep up. So festivals seem to be the key theme in our show today. And this also applies to our Ask No Film School question from Stephen T. this week, who asks, how do you research film festivals? Just that. 
Simple question, very complicated answer with many different variations. So John, you're pretty familiar with festival research. Yeah, I'm familiar with it simply because I put together this document every week for Indie Film Weekly, um, where I sort of scour through every film festival out there and try and find the best couple to feature on the show. And the resource I use for that is a site called Film Freeway. It's a little overwhelming. There are a ton of festivals out there. But if you're looking for some sort of database for where to start, I would definitely suggest that. You can sort of select uh, different categories of film festivals if you want to narrow down your field. It all just kind of depends on what your movie is going to be. I mean, you obviously want to be focusing on um if it's a short or if it's a feature, you can be submitting to short festivals versus submitting to both short and feature festivals. If it's a genre film, then you might want to consider submitting to a festival that is only dedicated to your genre. There's a lot of different things to think about when you're doing this. And I think a lot of it is just going to be what's the best place for your film. When you're making your initial outline, carve out a piece of the budget for these festivals that you want to be submitting to. Absolutely. And not only that, but the things that you might need if you get into the festival. So you might want to make sure you're you're carving out a little in that budget for, for example, a publicist if you do get into a major festival. Um, and building even more on that, I think even more important than kind of researching specific festivals like in a blanket way, I think just like John said, you really want to be strategic about your applications on a lot of levels. So for one, I think a lot of new filmmakers don't necessarily realize this, but where you premiere is is a pretty important choice. You don't want to kind of blow your premiere on a smaller festival if you think you have the opportunity to get into a bigger festival. Because, for example, festivals like Sundance and even South by Southwest and some of the others in some of their sections, or in the case of Sundance in all of their sections, require that the film is a premiere. So if you've shown anywhere else you don't have a chance of getting in that festival. So definitely keep that in mind. And note that this also sometimes applies to online premieres. So if you've premiered your film on Vimeo, for example, um, sometimes, depending on the festival, it might not be eligible. 100%. I think you also want to be strategic in the way John was talking about. So maybe ask yourself, what is it that you want to get out of the festival? And that can help you narrow down um, some of your choices. For example... If you want to just, you know what, I made my film, I, I don't think it really has distribution possibilities, I just want to enjoy the festival circuit and have fun, then go look at Movie Maker Magazine's list of the top, you know, coolest film festivals in the world and apply to those. Just go for go for it, go for fun. If you want to find a distributor to help you get your film out there, then you're going to want to go to a film festival that has a market or that has uh, that you know gets very well covered by the press that where distributors will be paying attention. Yeah, and also building off that, in the sense of applying to a festival for sort of what you take away from it, if you're looking to go to a festival to like make some money and to win a prize, then, you know, keep an eye out for festivals that give cash prizes. But if you're looking for, you know, a festival that's going to build your network and it's going to make you sort of um, learn something about the craft of screenwriting or the craft of filmmaking, then there's plenty of film festivals that, you know, provide you with those opportunities. Yeah. And John also mentioned, like, if you have a genre film, you might want to go to a genre festival. The same is true for any kind of niche. 
I, I do still recommend at least trying to premiere at one of the big name festivals. But if that doesn't pan out or if you're not even interested, it may be even better for you and your film to attend a festival that's very specifically focused on whatever your film is focused on, like one of these environmental festivals, or um, there are lots of different, you know, like the Asian American Film Festival, Jewish Film Festivals. These festivals will take you directly to an audience that already cares about your film. You'll probably get more attention there than you would at a festival where you're competing with every kind of film from every kind of place. And often the niche festivals actually pay you to come or pay your expenses to come, which is a huge benefit because big festivals like South by Southwest, they give you a badge for free, but they don't fly you in. So good luck, Stephen. Keep us posted and we can't wait to see your film at a big festival next year. And here are some movies that are coming to streaming services near you this week. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant on September 17th, Robert Eggers' The Witch. That is single-handedly one of my favorite films of the year, Um, mostly because I love the way that it plays with the horror genre. It's very understated, but incredibly scary. Robert Eggers was actually a production designer throughout most of his career, And um, you can really tell because he invested a lot of detail into the sets, which are very spare, but very historically accurate and realistic. Pretty much all of the elements of the film come together perfectly for me. The soundtrack is amazing. John's actually going to a master class with the composer here at TIFF. So we'll look forward to seeing what he learns there. And the cinematography is very beautiful too. It, It evokes the the ominous nature of the woods and colonialism. Yeah, it's just a fully realized world. That's really nice and refreshing to see. It was the best performing indie of the year in terms of box office by far this year. Um, It came out at Sundance a few years ago and was picked up by A24. And you should definitely see it if you haven't. So check it out if you have Amazon Instant. Coming to Netflix on September 16th is Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. It's a documentary about the making of a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark by 11-year-old kids in 1982. To be fair, they weren't 11 when it was finished. The entire thing took about seven years for the pair of friends to pull off. This movie came out to great reviews earlier this summer, and it should be a really good exercise for DIY filmmakers to watch and learn about some of these 11-year-olds' innovations. They used some crazy inventive methods to try and pull off a few of Indiana Jones's trickier shots. Earlier this week, The Royal Road came to VOD and DVD. Uh, Oakley interviewed its filmmaker, Jenny Olsen, at Sundance last year. The movie falls loosely within the documentary category, but it's really more of an avant-garde cinematic essay that touches on all sorts of topics from butch lesbian identity to the Spanish colonization of America. This sounds a little esoteric for some, but hey, if it was good enough for Sundance, it is definitely good enough for us. And Jenny is a really interesting person because she's not only a filmmaker, but she's a preeminent LGBT cinema historian. So perhaps it's this awareness of history that plays a part in her unusual choice to shoot her documentaries on 16 millimeter film. She actually wrote an essay for us this week on No Film School about why shooting with 16 millimeter is important to her. And um, it's a really neat kind of personal take on basically a dying medium. Coming out in theaters this week, Friday, you can see Kicks, which is Justin Tipping's debut feature about a 15-year-old whose dream pair of Air Jordans are stolen by a gang as soon as he gets them. He and his two friends then go on a dangerous mission through Oakland to retrieve them. 
we were putting together our list for the films we're most excited to about at uh, TIFF this week, and I remembered that this film was actually on Ryan's um, top three picks for Tribeca earlier this year. So it's getting a theatrical release. Good job, Justin Tipping. And uh, you guys can all check it out in theaters. Yeah, it was the opening night narrative film at Tribeca this year. Yeah, uh, and the Notorious B.I.G.'s son is in it. Right. Also coming to theaters this Friday is author the J.T. Leroy story, which kicked off the rooftop film season this year, directed by Jeff Furtzig. And the film tells the controversial story of novelist and punk author Laura Albert, otherwise known as J.T. Leroy. If you remember the scandal from the 90s, she was publishing under a fake literary persona, and many people, including her fans and her agents and people that loved her and knew her very well, felt betrayed by her alternate persona. Essentially, she invented a 20-year-old androgynous boy who was raised in truck stops with his prostitute mother, and it gave rise to a cultural sensation in the literary world, and it called into the question the idea of author identity. We also have a podcast from Sundance that was hosted by Micah Van Hove, and it's about the collaboration between cinematographer Richard Henkels and editor Michelle M. Witten. I want to make a special mention this week. Uh, we don't always cover TV series on the show, but Donald Glover's Atlanta premiered on FX earlier this week. You may know him by his hip-hop name, Childish Gambino. I did not know him. Very interesting name. tidbit. <laughs> Until I did a little research. But uh, the youth know that one. Listen, <laughs> I know I know I knew there was a Talish Gambino. That's good. And That's, I knew there was a Donald Glover. Mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. didn't know they were one and the same handsome man. And let's see if they collide in this show, huh? Anyhow, <laughs> he's 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 all the things. He's he's a quadruple threat. He's an actor. He's a writer. He actually started writing on the show 30 Rock when he was only 21. He's a successful rapper, albeit by a different name. And now he's a producer. Um, he created the series and is starring in it. And we actually have an interview with the show's DP, Christian Sprenger, on No Film School this week about uh, working on that show and trying to make it feel kind of gritty and authentic. Cool. Got to read that one. You can read that interview and all the stories we've talked about on nofilmschool.com. We'll have links to them on the podcast post this week. Speaking of the podcast, please, please subscribe and rate us with five stars naturally on iTunes and stay in touch. I'm on Twitter at Liz Film. I'm on Twitter at Jim John Jim. Jim John Jim. Jim 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 Jim. No one is ever going to actually know what. Hey, that we've is gotten tweets at you before. Have I? Oh, to very okay. astute listeners. I, I look. Mm-hmm. Listeners. It's catchy. And I'm on Twitter at, on the Twitter at EL Booter. And we are all on Twitter at No Film School. Thanks so much, guys. We will be uh, with you next week again from Toronto with a special TIFF episode. And we'll talk to you then. Bye.